Good evening to you. It is a blessing to be with you. That microphone has a red light, so I grabbed another one. Thank you. Thanks for being nimble. Chad, where are you? There you are, settling there in the front. Obviously not a Baptist here in the front. Thank you so much for the invitation and for your kindness to have coffee with me on two occasions now, and I hope many more. It's been edifying for me and uh, wonderful to hear what the Lord is doing in your church. And it's evident as I look around the room and as I see a multi-generational church. That is a healthy church. And I am so delighted to see all of these children. It warms my heart to see a church that is convicted by Deuteronomy 6, that you ought to teach your children when you rise up, when you go to bed, pretty much 24-7. They're soaking in it, the Word of God, in your homes. I can just tell... And then Psalm 78, that you ought to uh, pass this on, even praying for those who haven't been born yet. And I see some who are on the way, and I know they're being prayed for. And then Ephesians 6, dads have a very special role, and I see dads stepping out and taking that role in this church. So thank you for a wonderful testimony, just coming into your presence and being with you tonight. Recently, I read uh, about a little girl named McKinsey. She wasn't trying to start a theological debate one Sunday. She just wanted to make a point about Jesus' resurrection. Her Sunday school teacher had tried to encourage the children and assure them that Jesus was everywhere. But for McKenzie, that didn't sound quite right. So she said, I know one place where Jesus isn't. The teacher replied curiously, oh really, where is that? The bright little girl declared, he is not in the grave. (laughs) What a great reminder. What a great lesson for us. Our omnipresent God has chosen to make his presence absent from the grave. For just as the angel said, he is not here. He is risen, just as he said. The resurrection teaches us many lessons. This evening, we're going to focus quickly on five of them. Now, I know most Baptist preachers have three points and then a poem. We're going to have five points with your indulgence, if that's okay. And I asked Chad earlier the way logistically the service would go. And uh, he said, well, at the end of the sermon, then you just kind of hand it off to me. And I said, well, that's usually where we pass out the snakes. (laughs) But we'll refrain from that tonight as well, if that's okay. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 24. In Luke's account of the resurrection, he includes an amazing narrative. In fact, it may be my favorite post-resurrection story in the scriptures. It is full of truths for us to discover and lessons for us to learn. Let's begin with verse 13 as we gain insights from the Emmaus education. Luke 24, 13 through 16. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Let me pause for a moment. Three years ago, I was in Jerusalem. Our last night there, we went seven miles downhill to Emmaus and had dinner there before uh, leaving the next day. It is seven miles downhill, let me tell you. Verse 14, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Verse 13 begins that very day. What day is it? What day is this day? 
Well, this is mid to late afternoon on Resurrection Sunday. Two of Jesus' followers, Cleopas, who is named, and another who is not named, are walking seven miles down that hill, down the mountain, if you will, on the road to Emmaus. As they walk together, Jesus gathers with them. Look at verse 16 again. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. As Jesus walks with them, they do not recognize him. Well, this is a man they knew very well. Why do they not recognize this man whom they had followed? Now, there are times when all of us choose to close our eyes to what's going on around us. I heard about Barry, who was a 16-year-old. He just received his learner's permit. He had just learned how to drive. So his mom gave him the keys and asked him to drive her to church. After a 10-minute ride, which featured speeding and abrupt stops, hairpin turns, and collisions with multiple curbs, Barry finally pulled the car into the church parking lot. His mother got out of the car and said, Thank you. Anytime, Barry replied. As his mom slammed the door, she said, I wasn't talking to you, I was talking to God. You know, sometimes we don't want to see what's happening. But that's not the case on the road to Emmaus. Luke tells us their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So it's not that they were in denial. It's not that they were really bad at recognizing faces and names. Something far greater is going on here. There is a veil over their eyes. They are kept from recognizing Jesus. Well, who is it that's causing their temporary blindness? I believe God is. God does not want them to recognize Jesus, but why? There can only be one reason. Great truths are about to be taught to them and to us. May these lessons not be veiled to us. Let's open our eyes to what God wants to teach us. We'll begin with lesson one. On the road to Emmaus, lesson one is this. We are taught how to face trials. We're taught how to face trials. Look at verses 17 through 24. In fact, we'll stop at 19. 17 through 19. And he, Jesus, said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? As Jesus joins with these two who are walking along with downturned faces, saddened hearts, he asks them what they are discussing. Cleopas turns to Jesus and says, essentially, what are you, clueless? I'm paraphrasing a little here. He asks Jesus, are you the only person in Jerusalem that doesn't know the things that have occurred this weekend? Don't you get out much? Don't you watch the news? Don't you read the paper? I believe Jesus' response proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that he has a great sense of humor. What does he say to that? Oh, what things? What things have been going on? Let's continue with verse 19. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. 
how they respond is so instructive, revealing the condition of their hearts. They had followed Jesus, believing that he was the Messiah. Now they simply call him the prophet who did some great things. They say, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Oh, but they had seen him die. Now they are in despair, defeated by all that's happened. Let me ask you, are you ever defeated by the situations you face? By the things you witness? Have you ever faced such difficulties that you began to doubt? Have you ever been dashed by the difficulties of life? Have you, like Cleopas, ever said to the Lord, like he took the weekend off or something, where have you been? Don't you know what's happening in my life? Would you open your eyes to this simple truth this evening? Jesus is with you. Jesus is with you. No matter what you are facing, the Lord is with you. He said himself, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Hebrews 13, 5, the Lord says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He's not only aware of your situation, he has experienced it. And he's had victory over it. What's sad is this. We know all of this. We know it. And yet at times we still live in defeat. And what's really sad is we don't recognize that it's Jesus who's with us. We don't recognize that Jesus is with us no matter what we face and he's with us always. Let's go on to verse 21. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day, Cleopas says, since these things happened. Verse 22, moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Cleopas and the other disciple knew that the tomb was empty. They had heard the testimony of angels and the women of their company. Even those that had been with them had seen it, and they had reported that the tomb was empty. They knew these people. But what does Cleopas' countenance reveal? He doesn't believe it. He is wallowing in doubt despite the truth. Christian brothers and sisters, it is high time we turn our mourning into dancing. Even though the world looks like it's falling apart all around us, there is chaos all around us. Even though there are times we wonder if we're even living in the same country anymore. Folks, we need to live in victory despite what's happening all around us. He turns our mourning into dancing, our sadness into joy, and our defeat into victory. Live in victory. Romans 8, 31 through 37 sums it up perfectly. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, finish it with me. Who can be against us? Who is to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did I leave anything out? I don't think so. Paul's list is all-inclusive. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus teaches us how to face trials with victory. I think of Paul and Silas sitting in a jail singing hymns. How could they do that? Because they were living in victory. Remember, Jesus is always with you, no matter what you face. Let's move on to the lesson, second lesson from Emmaus. Emmaus teaches us how to read the Bible. Look at verses 25 through 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. After Cleopas reveals their lack of belief, and even after hearing about the empty tomb from people they knew, Jesus offers them a stern rebuke. He calls them foolish ones. He says they are slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. They should have known. They should have known better from the teachings and from the scriptures that the Messiah would have to suffer. Then what Jesus says next is a profound lesson on how we are to read the Bible. He says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This has to be the greatest Bible study ever presented. Can you imagine? And what scripture passages did he use? Did he pull out his Gideon pocket-sized New Testament? No, he directed them to the writings of the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't even close to being written yet. Jesus begins with the message of Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Jesus then opened all the prophets, the five major prophets, are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And the minor prophets are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. By the way, Nehemiah 8 has some of the worst names. It is just a horrible curse when the pastor asks you to read Nehemiah 8. You did a marvelous job with that. What does Jesus claim about the Old Testament? The content of the Old Testament points to him. It is about Jesus. I don't mean to pick on anyone, but over the years I've heard several folks Folks, I respect deeply, say something like this. We don't need the Old Testament. We are New Testament believers. What do you all think about that? To those folks I ask, when Paul says that Jesus is our Passover lamb, how do we know what that means unless we have Exodus 12 to help us understand? This means reading typologically, looking for the foreshadowing in the Old Testament. When the New Testament claims this happened to fulfill the scriptures, how do we know what prophecy has been fulfilled without studying the Old Testament? Augustine, the great father of the early church, said, The New Testament is in the Old Concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Revealed. I love that. 
So from our Emmaus education, we've learned how to read the Bible because Jesus taught about himself from all the scriptures. When you read the word of God, realize it's about the word of God, the word made flesh who dwelt among us. Next on the Emmaus road, we learn how to know Jesus. Look at verses 28 through 35. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is not far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Jesus is known to them in the breaking of the bread. They had walked with Jesus now for quite some time, and yet they didn't know who he was. They had studied the word of God, perhaps the greatest Bible study ever presented from Jesus to them, and they didn't know who he was. He's about to walk on. No, come and share with us at table. And as Jesus sits down at the table, he does something very odd. Did you catch it? This is not his house. And yet he is serving them. Isn't that just like our Jesus? When you invite people over to the house, do you expect them to serve you? That would be kind of nice, wouldn't it? But that's not normal. Jesus is not a normal man, is he? Jesus serves them. He takes the bread and he gives thanks. You can stay on. He gives thanks. He blesses it. He breaks it. And he gives it to them. In that moment, their eyes are opened. Later they would say, we knew him in the breaking of the bread. Biblical knowing is intimacy. Adam knew Eve and she bore him a son. Jesus is the groom and we are the bride of Christ. In the marriage covenant, there is the word of the covenant. That is the expectation. And the vow that the couple shares invoking God into the middle of their relationship sacred promises made before a holy God. And then the sign of the covenant. Well, we can take part in this. We can see the kiss, you know, the ring in the middle of the service and the kiss. But the real sign of the covenant that ratifies the covenant is the consummation. When Genesis 2 is fulfilled, when the two become one flesh, when they know one another. We are invited to the table of the Lord. And Cleopas and the other disciple knew Jesus in the breaking of the bread. My friends, our groom invites us to the table. We, his bride, can know him. This is the intimacy of the sign of the covenant. This represents the union of Christ and his bride, the church. What a beautiful, beautiful gift we have at the Lord's table. The intensified presence of the Lord. Perhaps no greater time than in the marital act do a husband and wife, are they more present to each other? They are the most present to each other in that moment. And at the table of the Lord... He is surely present to us, and I pray that we are present to Him as we share in this beautiful moment of unity, of knowing Him in the breaking of the bread. Here in this account, we learn how to know Jesus. Number four, on the Emmaus Road, we learn how to worship. We learn how to worship. On that first Resurrection Sunday, Jesus taught us surely some amazing things. At the top of the list, Jesus shows us the pattern for worship. He shows us the pattern for biblical worship. 
I'm so blessed to see that you all follow this scriptural pattern. To your pastors, I say kudos to you all for following the biblical pattern that is laid out for us. Jesus shows us this here at Emmaus. In my study of biblical worship over the last three decades, the scriptures are really quite clear, but it seems like many churches have just cast that aside. You see, we have a covenantal relationship with God in Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, when a covenant is presented, here's what happens. God gathers his people. The word of the covenant is shared with them. The expectations of God, obey my voice and I will be your God and you will be my people. Then a covenant sign is shared, usually a sacrifice or meal. And this ratifies the covenant. And then the people are sent out to live the covenant. This is the picture of worship. This is the Kahal Yahweh, the sacred assembly of God's people. God calls his people together. They share the word. They share the sign. The covenant is renewed and they are sent forth to live the covenant. Did those things occur on the road to Emmaus? Think about it with me. On that resurrection day, Jesus gathered with the two, where two or more are gathered in my name. There I am in the midst of them. There is a gathering of God's people. How about the word? Indeed, Jesus opened the word of God to them. A great, great study of the scriptures. And what about the sign of the covenant? Jesus was about to go on, but they asked him to stay and to eat with them. Jesus broke the bread. As he did that in the upper, he did it just like he did in the upper room. Did you hear that? The same motif as in the upper room. The very same actions as in the upper room. Well, how about the sending forth? Well, this leads us to our final lesson. In the Emmaus Road narrative, Jesus teaches us how to respond when we worship. Now, I want to pause for just a second and go back to the last point because I forgot Nehemiah 8. And to have you read that and then not refer to it would be just an abomination. In Nehemiah 8, we find the same fourfold pattern. Did you all recognize that? God gathered the people at the water gate. Ezra read the word of God from 6 until noon. Pastor, try that sometime and see what happens. 6 till noon. And the people stood there. And they had, had lost the word. But in the rebuilding of the holy city, they found it. And the people were weeping because they realized they had forgotten to live by this word. And so the Levites were dispatched to explain it. And what did they say to the people? Don't be sad. Go have a feast, gathering, word, table. And then they went forth to live the renewed covenant. Well, is there another example in the New Testament? Yes, Acts 2. Acts 2, verse 42. At Pentecost, the people were being saved by the thousands, 3,000 in one day after Peter preached. And as many as were being saved were added to the church. When they gathered, they dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to prayer, and the breaking of bread. And then they went out to live the covenant. Oh, it was beautiful how they shared together. Miracles were happening. They were taking care of each other's needs. They had favor with God and all the people. There we have God gathering his people. They shared the ministry of the word, teaching of the apostles, the breaking of bread. And then they went forth to live the covenant. This is the biblical fourfold pattern of worship. 
Lesson five on the Emmaus Road is how to respond when we worship. Look at verses 32 through 35. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. They had gathered with Jesus. They heard the word of God and their hearts burned within them. They had come to the table of the Lord and they knew Jesus. The first time they recognized him was when he broke the bread. They knew him in the breaking of the bread. And what is their response? What did they do? They rose that same hour and no doubt I've experienced it. It is a downhill ride from Jerusalem to Emmaus. So when you go back up to Jerusalem, it's uphill. Have you ever been on a stair climber? That's what they were doing. They ran seven miles uphill back to Jerusalem. They shared what they had experienced in worship. Oh, that our worship might propel us forward like that. To share the good news that we have met Jesus. That we serve a risen Savior who is in the world today. Oh, that we might go forth Not to return to the defeat and the despair of the world, the hopelessness of the world. But we may go forth victoriously, knowing that Jesus is always with us. Oh Lord, open our eyes to your presence. That you will never leave us or forsake us. Open our eyes to your truth. That we are to live in victory. And send us forth to share what we've experienced together in worship. Would you pray with me?